Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? I couldn't be better, Tim. I know I say that every single time, but it's true. I would never lie about it. How are you today? I am doing great as well. And you know what? I don't think I could be better either. And we're speaking to a, uh, a really smart guy in this episode about a really compelling topic. His name is Iwan Morris, and we're speaking about Frankenstein and the idea of sort of reanimating, I guess, dead people. It's, uh, it sounds dark, but uh, I assure you this is a fun conversation. We first discovered this topic through a news article called Halloween Treat, A Brief History of Real-Life Frankensteins that piqued our interest immediately. That was on CNET.com, and it was written by Michelle Starr, and Iwin was featured in this article. Iwin is a professor of history at Aberystwyth University, and he graduated in the Natural Science Department from Cambridge University. We're speaking with a British gentleman, so you know he knows what he's talking about. Yes, and he's also an author. He wrote a book called called Frankenstein's Children, Electricity, Exhibition, and Experiment in Early 19th Century London, which is pretty specific, but that's when a lot of these uh, sort of tests got underway. And, uh, you know, a big part of the conversation takes place sort of in that time period. I find it compelling. I hope you do as well. Yeah, and the jury's still out on whether or not Professor Morris has indeed experimented on reanimating lifeless corpses, but listen to the interview and, and tell us whether or not you think he's uh, gone down that path before. My, my vote's yes. Seems pretty obvious when you take a step back uh, and look at all his work, Lance. Just kidding. Great guy. Great conversation. I hope you really enjoy it. Please follow us on Twitter and social media. We're at Crawlspace Podcast and Crawlspace Pod on Twitter. And you can follow Professor Morris on Twitter at IRM. O-R-U-S, the number one, and stay up to date on everything reanimation in his world. Canada, a vast idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Hi there, I'm Jordan Bonaparte, and on my show, Nighttime, I seek out and explore Canada's most fascinating stories. Nighttime stories are told using intimate discussions with those affected. They left you there. That was the last time anyone ever saw her. Jailhouse interviews with those held responsible. The context of that meeting would be some kind of mass shooting. And any other way necessary to get you to the heart of the story. You can join me by subscribing to Nighttime wherever you get streaming audio. Welcome to the podcast, Ewan Morris. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks very much, and how are you? 
We're doing really well. Um, we've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So thank you for joining us. And this has been something that Tim brought to our attention because he's been fascinated with the whole Frankenstein concept. And there was this article that was written. It featured you. So you were gracious enough to join us and, and lend your expertise on this. And I can't think of a better person to speak with about a morbidly fascinating topic. <laughs> well, yes, I think it is morbidly fascinating. I mean, I don't know why, but there is something about experimentation on the dead, playing around with life, that seems fascinating to everybody, I guess. Okay, so before we get into this topic, can you give a little bit of background on yourself and where you are at in this uh, section of the world? I'm Johan Morris. I'm a professor of history at Aberystwyth University, which is in Wales, in West Wales, in a little town called Aberystwyth on the West Coast. If you're familiar with Wales at all, think of the curve of Cardigan Bay. Aberystwyth is there slap bang in the middle. I'm a professor of history and, and I'm a historian of science, essentially. I started off going to university a, quite a long time ago now, planning as one does to be a physicist. But I think I discovered fairly early on in my university career that I was less fascinated by doing science than by understanding science, as was understand, understanding science as a, as a phenomenon, as a way of kind of trying to understand the world around us. So I ended up doing my PhD in the history of science on 19th century science. Um, and electricity came up, so to speak, and aspects of this kind of strange and long-standing fascination, really, with the relationship between electricity and life. Which is not new to the it's not new to the 19th century. When Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein in 1818, she's writing about something that's on the one hand, yeah, actually, I mean, I mean, quite topical. You know, there's a lot going on around electricity and the nervous the nervous fluid and life. Right then, you could go back a hundred years and more, and there were people, even Isaac Newton, speculating about the relationship between electricity and the processes of life. And yeah, it's fascinating. And it fits in with my kind of broader interest as a historian and a historian of physics with the relationship between science and the body, if you like. Science about bodies, physics about bodies, and the bodies of scientists themselves, so to speak, and the role they play in, in doing physics, in doing experiments and such like. Which is counterintuitive, I suppose, in this sense, in that when we think about physics, we usually think about great minds. I mean, sometimes, as in the case of the late Stephen Hawking, almost literally great minds, so to speak. Um, so I've always been fascinated by the ways in which scientists actually in practice use their own bodies quite a lot you know, to do experiments, to play around with things. And indeed, very often, particularly in the 19th century, to perform. Scientists in the 19th century you know, get up on stage in front of publics. They perform, they carry out spectacular experiments on stage, they carry out experiments with bodies and bits of bodies on stage. So this kind of fascination around about Frankenstein fed into that kind of broader concern, if you like. It's it's pretty incredible. And you've written several works on the topic of Frankenstein. One of the articles you wrote in October of 2018, it's titled Frankenstein, The Real Experiments That Inspired the Fictional Science. First, how how many works have you 
published about this. And I loved your explanation of how you were more fascinated with the idea of the scientist, not the science itself, but the, the history of the science and where that came from. And, and you referenced Mary Shelley, obviously. I guess I have like many questions ro- like rolled into one. We'll start off with how many works have you done about this uh, Frankenstein concept? Um, in 1998, I published a book called Frankenstein's Children, which wasn't so much about kind of Frankenstein and Mary Shelley and the monster itself, but looking at the culture of electricity in early Victorian Britain, you know, looking at experiment, looking at looking at everybody who wasn't Michael Faraday, I suppose, in a certain sense, and what the kind of broader sense of you know, what people thought electricity was about. And since then, I've revisited this material um, or aspects of this material over and over again. I mean, not necessarily always about Frankenstein, but I mean, looking at medical electricity, I mean, I do is when you how electricity might cure all sorts of ills and how that kind of feeds into 19th century ideas about what the future would look like and how the future might be made. We all make our futures actually. I mean, from the 19th century, the Victorians invented this way of thinking about the future. Something that's kind of made up out of kind of extrapolated bits of present technologies. So experiments with electricity and bodies and life feed into these notions of, you know, what it's going to be like in the future and what human bodies indeed are going to be like in the future. People like Nikola Tesla at the end of the century speculating about how they, if they give him enough money to do his experiments, then humans will become as gods. I mean, that kind of, that kind of fantasy. But I mean, I think returning to slightly closer to the ground and, and Shelley and Frankenstein, what's fascinating about that story is how it really, I mean, we may think of that kind of story written in the early 19th century as being kind of this kind of gothic horror, implausible, complete fantasy. But for most of the book's readers back then, well, for the one hand, yes, it's clearly fiction. It would have been understood as fiction with a strong air of plausibility. What Shelley's writing about is something that would have been familiar to her readers. They would know that there was right then in the 1810s speculation about the relationship between electricity and life. They would know that there had been experiments, there had been some very well-known experiments where people did interesting things with electricity to dead bodies. And they would know that that there's a history of speculation there. So in that sense, it would be nothing new. It would be radical, it would be dangerous, it would be challenging various ways. But the notion that you might use electricity to produce artificial life in itself wouldn't be something that was kind of weird and beyond the pale to the original readers. Right. Like, it's perfect for a horror movie or a science fiction story or something. Like, you can you can see how it, that was written in that day as something that's really probably wouldn't have been written too far before, but it's using details of the day, which is, you know, very much horror or thriller thing to do. Um, yes, I, mean, I think that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, I think, I mean, what makes good science fiction work now is that sense of, okay, this isn't stuff that we can do now, but you can, you can imagine how to get from now to there, so to speak. The kinds of technologies that they invoke are technologies that are based on the sorts of technologies that we have now. And yes, I mean, for, you know, for Shelley and Frankenstein, 
yeah, yeah, you know, those are the sorts of technologies that she that she's talking about. Yeah, nobody would read Mary Shelley in 1818 and think, oh no, 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 yeah, nothing like that could possibly happen. That's just simply beyond beyond the realms of possibility. It would seem to be plausible. This is something that people are talking about. Yeah, they're aware of experiments like that. They're aware of much speculation that yes, you really can make the dead walk. I mean, people like Giovanni Aldini, 15 years or so before the book was written, you know, did indeed carry out experiments like this. There's a huge debate raging during the period when Frankenstein was written between two doctors, Lawrence and Abernethy, William Lawrence and John Abernethy, which Mary and Percy Bysshe Shelley certainly knew about since Lawrence was their doctor. So it was, it was in the air, so to speak. Um, literally a few months after Frankenstein was published, a Glaswegian doctor, a guy called Andrew Ewer, carries out another gruesome experiment like this, which he kind of quite explicitly describes in kind of very kind of gothic, horror-esque, so to speak, language. So, you know, the readers know about this stuff. So, you know, this is within the boundaries of the real, so to speak. You know, this is something that would appear perfectly plausible to Shelley's readers. And you mentioned uh, Giovanni Aldini, uh, who is an Italian philosopher. Can you tell us a little bit about his experiments that he performed with this, uh, with this technique or, or this, this method using electricity? Um, Giovanni Aldini, he's an Italian natural philosopher, what we would call a physicist. And he was the nephew of an even more famous Italian natural philosopher, Luigi Galvani. Galvanism is named after Galvani. Galvani, in the late 18th century, came up with the idea of animal electricity, the notion that all animal bodies, and that includes our bodies, have electricity in them and that you can identify, you can detect that electricity. Gets into a big fight with yet another Italian called Alessandro Volta, and Volta invents what we now call the battery, you know, voltaic cell, in an explicit attempt to demonstrate that Galvani was wrong that it wasn't the bodies in his experiments that were producing the electricity, but that it was the bits of metal involved in the experiment that was producing the electricity. Aldini, amongst other things, is trying to prove Volta wrong, and he's trying to prove Volta wrong by showing that you could produce electricity without the metals at all, actually. It is just coming from the bodies. So when Aldini's experimenting on bodies, He's actually doing two things. He's first of all showing that you can generate electricity from bodies. It's either gruesome or amusing, depending on your point of view. I mean, Galvani did his experiment with frogs' legs, and frogs' legs make quite good detectors of electricity. So you can see pictures of Baldini carrying out experiments on corpses, where he's literally kind of dangling kind of a pair of frogs' legs over. You know, he's 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 poking them into the wound in the body. The idea is that the legs will twitch, and that will show you that there's electricity in that body. So he's trying to show that you can produce electricity from bodies, and he's also trying to show that you can use electricity to, if not quite, bring bodies back to life, but you can at least use electricity to make bodies act as if they're alive. So he's carried out experiments back home in Bologna, um, and then in 1803, he comes to London. The Napoleonic Wars are going on at the time, but there's a brief ceasefire 
and Aldini takes advantage of the ceasefire to come over to London. I mean, London is one of the main centres of scientific activity at this time. Yeah, he wants to try and persuade people at the Royal Society that you know, he's right and that therefore Galvani was right. He's looking for a corpse, basically, and corpses at the beginning of the 19th century in London are quite easy to find. It's a culture where capital punishment is performed on, on a regular basis. And it's a culture in which, if it's considered that your crime is sufficiently heinous, being killed isn't enough for you. You're also going to be experimented, not usually with electricity, you'll usually be taken away and be dissected by the surgeons. But there's a ready supply, in fact, the only legal supply of bodies for experimentation. So Aldini gets the body of an executed murderer, I call George Forster, and he carries out a series of experiments on, on the corpse. Um, he passes, passes electricity you know, through the limbs, through the arms, through the legs, makes the, the arms and the legs twitch. He exposes nerves in the chest. He passes electricity across the chest. The body gives the appearance of breathing. So effectively, what, you know, what he's trying to do is show that electricity does act like the nervous force, that in situations where the nervous power is gone, you know, the body's dead, you can use electricity just you know, to simulate the appearance of life. You can make the body move in a lifelike, inverted commas, fashion. Okay, I, I have a couple of quick questions before we go on, because this is this is truly uh, what we were and exceeding our expectations. First, I need to back up a little bit. I, you said that bodies were plentiful back then. Uh, how does one procure a body, though? I mean, the, uh, the public hangings happen. Is there like a bidding system or a lottery? Or how did a philosopher say, like, I'm qualified to take this body for experiments? You, so to speak, know the right people. Um, Aldini has his contacts in the Royal Society, in the Royal and with the Royal College of Surgeons, um, and it's the Royal College of Surgeons who are, it's to them that the bodies are handed over, so to speak, and the Royal College of Surgeons gets to decide who who gets to who you know, who gets to experiment with with with, with these bodies. So yeah, you know, Aldini gets his hands, so to speak, on the on, on this body that way. I mean, it's all it's all actually quite a ceremonial process. You know, the body is hanged at Newgate and then it's kind of ceremoniously carried across town to the Royal College of Surgeons where there's an anatomical theatre and there it is going to, but normally it would then be publicly dissected there. But on this occasion, you know, it's publicly electrified, galvanised there. Like fre fresh off the uh, gallows, like they hung him and then and then they, they took him to be publicly experimented with? Pretty fresh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I simultaneously, I, I'm simultaneously so mad I didn't live back then, but so happy I didn't live back then. <laughs> I'm about to say, take my word for it. You are very happy indeed that you yeah. didn't live back then. <laughs> okay, so um, I can see how that would lead to sort of some obvious questions of is this even the right thing to do, this kind of experimentation. How, how, I guess... Big picture question, is that is that why we're still interested in this topic? In what sense, I mean, I mean the, the relationship between electricity and life or, or 
yeah, I guess the moral aspect of this question, right? Like, um, you can reanimate the dead. Are you playing God? Yes and no. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it's interesting to look at how those kinds of questions are raised and how and what kind of answers are, are delivered at various points. I mean, I think, I mean, Shelley in the, I mean, I mean, certainly one of the questions that Mary Shelley is asking her readers in Frankenstein is, do we think that this is something that should be done? Do we think that this is a properly philosophical way to behave? Um, but I think it is less to do with whether or not natural philosophers should play God and more to do with the responsibility of the creator for its creation. I mean, Frankenstein, the experimenter's sin, so to speak, in Frankenstein, isn't that he creates life. Frankenstein's sin in Frankenstein is that he creates life and then recoils in horror and runs away and refuses to take responsibility for what he's done. So I think that's what, that, that's what Shelley's getting at, I think, that she's, she's raising questions about the responsibility that that you know, that experimenters have for their you know, for their works, what you know, what might happen with it, which is particularly acute when you know, the outcome of experiment is is life. One might also, almost be inclined to wonder slightly whether she's inviting her readers to ask that question of God as well. I mean, what's God? You know, what is God's responsibility to his creation? Has God abandoned his creation? But I mean, certainly in terms of you know, the experimenter's responsibility, you know, there are questions being asked there about, well, you've produced this, you've created this, you have some responsibility for this, and you can't, or there are consequences if you abandon that responsibility. And I think that, and I, yes, absolutely, I think that that's a question that very much resonates with us now, though I think, you know, despite the prevailing popularity of you know, things like the Frankenstein story, in kind of current debates you know, around about AI, say, we often seem to forget that actually the sorts of questions that AI raises now are actually questions with a history. And it's a and it's a history that's consequential to the way that we think about these issues now. And that's one reason why I think it's important to think about the history of science and to think about the history of experiments like this. Because we very often carry on in our culture as if we're, so to speak, permanently rediscovering the wheel. That oh, all of a sudden, yeah. AI is a possibility. Oh, we need to think about all these issues. Well, actually, there are issues that have been thought about for about two centuries now. And thinking more about the way people thought about these things in the past might actually be quite a good way of in informing our, our current debates about, I mean, what do we think about the possibilities of, of new sorts of life? And we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. New England is known for its charming towns, comforting foods, and of course its historical contributions, but the Down East region can have a dark side. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and on my weekly podcast, Dark Down East, I dig into both decades-old and modern-day cases from my home state of Maine and the greater New England area. In each episode of Dark Down East, I seek insight from law enforcement officials, family members, and other loved ones who are both deeply familiar with the cases and the individuals at the heart of them. Join me as I unveil intricacies of these stories that are often overlooked, honor the grit of those searching for justice, and shine a light on cases that you aren't hearing on other podcasts. 
Listen to Dark Down East now, wherever you're listening. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. I think that's really interesting. Why are you so fascinated by this topic? Is that along the same lines? Yes, I think. Well, I mean, it's to do with, I mean, what I was talking about a little while ago about the, you know, the ways in which the Victorians sort of invent the future, at least you know, the future in the way that we think about the future now as something that kind of you know, comes out of the bits and pieces of the present is, is extrapolated into the future. The Victorians invent that way of thinking about the future. You know, the future is somewhere that's going to be different. And the future as a place that's going to be arrived at through the manipulation of technology. This, in a certain sense, is what science and technology gets to be for, for the Victorians. It's a tool for creating tomorrow. It's a tool for getting to this kind of imagined future that's you know, 
that's always on the brink of appearing. And I think that we still tend to think about our futures now and ask questions about the futures and who, you know, who's going to make it, who has resp responsibility for it, still using a kind of Victorian rule book without necessarily being as aware as we should be of you know, why we think about the future now in the way that, as a matter of fact, we do think about the future. So I think that's why we need to go back. I mean, constantly, really. You know, we, we always need to go back and look at, well, where, you know, where does this way of thinking have its origins? I mean, where, you know, in the case of AI, say, where do the sorts of fears about the dangers of AI, say, now, where does that come from? Why do we make those sorts of associations now? Why are we worried about AI replacing human labor? There's actually quite an interesting side, side light there. Our friend Andrew Ewer, who in 1818 did those experiments up in Glasgow on the, on the body of Matthew Clydesdale about 14, 15 years later, wrote a book called Philosophy of Manufactures, which was all about machinery as replacements for skilled human labor. Ewer has a kind of walk-on part in Karl Marx's Capital. It's in a footnote somewhere where Marx describes, describes him as the pindar of the factory system. You know, this kind of puffer of the factory system, somebody who's an uncritical fan of machinery as a way of replacing human labor. So right from the beginning, there's this interesting link between kind of electrical bodies and machines that, that, you know, that are going to replace us. And I think that's kind of built into the way we think about things now as well. Think Terminator, when, again, Nikola Tesla in the 1890s is speculating about how eventually war will become completely automated. You know, humans won't be involved anymore. They just kind of send the machines off to fight each other. Well, you know, that, you know, that creates a relationship between what AI is for and you know, where, you know, where it plays in our kind of popular imagination now. So I think always looking back at what, you know, why we ask these questions of our technologies now you know, is a way of helping ourselves and say, so, well, you know, we might actually want to think about this in a different way now. It might be time for a different rule book. But you know, first of all, we need to understand that the rules of the game that we play are rules that are kind of rooted in the history of these sorts of discussions for quite a long time. Where, where would you say that there's a line, is there a line that is not to be crossed? if you're recreating some sort of artificial intelligence or some sort of artificial life? I'm slightly agnostic about the possibilities of AI, or at least it's certainly, it's certainly the case that pretty much everything that is currently being described as AI is not actually, in my view, in any meaningful sense, artificial intelligence at all. They're just very, very, very clever algorithms. It seems to me that AI, in a certain sense, is kind of a misnomer in terms of what we're really talking about. When, we, when we're talking about what we call AI, what we're actually worrying about is artificial consciousnesses, not artificial intelligence. Given that as far as I make out, scientists and philosophers are alike are completely at a loss to give a decent account of what consciousness is. I think we're a very, very long way away from producing anything like artificial consciousness. But having said that, if we can produce artificial life, then, I mean, I don't think there's a line. I don't think that there's a, oh, no, 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 you can't go there. But I do think there's a difficult question of, well, why, why do we want to do that? And again, you know, the challenge that Mary Shelley was posing for her readers back in 1818 and the, and the criticism mounted at, at Frankenstein, if we do want to create artificial life, like in there, 
then we need to take responsibility for it. We need to be aware of what we're doing, its possibilities, its limitations, what it can do. You can't let things loose on the universe and just say, yeah, sure, off you go, have fun. You made it, you have responsibility, and that, and that obviously applies for things beyond, <laughs> beyond Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, that, that applies to everything that we do. So would, would Jeff Bezos be Dr. Frankenstein and we're, we're all his children? <laughs> Goodness me, I hope not. <laughs> but yes, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it is a question to, to be posed of you know, people who really are seriously trying to do particular sorts of things. Yeah. Why? What's it for? What are the implications? Are you going to take responsibility? And in a lot of ways, I mean, who, I mean, who gets to play these kinds of games? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fascinated by the possibilities of science and technology. I mean, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a science nerd. I watched and watched Star Trek. Yeah, all that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's where I come from. But I worry about great techno-scientific projects that are uniquely identified with particular individuals, that are particular individuals' hobbies, games something that they can do and is so to speak for them because it never is really just them i mean it may be you know, elon musk or jeff bezos going up to space going to mars whatever but it's the collective labor of tens of thousands of people who have gotten them there and the kind of you know, when we identify these kind of futuristic projects with those individuals and with, and have this kind of view of you know, who makes the future that kind of identifies the future. You know, this is, you know, this is where Tesla went wrong, if you like. I mean, Tesla absolutely wanted to remake the future, but he wanted to be the man who remade the future. You know, that's why he died penniless. He wasn't, he, he wasn't willing to let anybody else in, so to speak. And I think that you know, looking at some of our contemporary techno entrepreneurs there's that sense of ownership that you know, this is ours and sort of well no it isn't because actually lots of people can contribute towards this in all sorts of ways and and also it shouldn't be i mean you can't let the future you can't let the technologies that will determine our future you know, belong to particular individuals it should be something that belongs to everybody she said, I didn't even think about the idea of Frankenstein and social media. That opens up a whole nother um, total total rabbit hole in my uh, brain. Yeah, and you mentioned consciousness. Obviously, we don't know. There's no way to know if consciousness would carry over if you were to reanimate a corpse. Is that correct? Well, I've never tried to reanimating a corpse, so I, so I don't really know. Um, there is, in fact, a fascinating little Victorian, well, just about Victorian. It's actually written in the 1830s little short story in a magazine called Blackwood's Magazine that kind of goes to that very question. A little short story called The New Frankenstein. The Black Blackwood's Magazine is a Tory magazine, so it's a satire, but it's an interesting satire. The short story it basically features a student in Germany who somehow or other discovers Frankenstein's monster, who decides that what the monster lacks is, first of all, that the monster lacks a mind so the student invents a gizmo that he then basically wanders around europe with basically draining the minds of you know, europe's greatest thinkers and kind of putting them into the monster's head with the inevitable result of the monster goes mad 
And then the student decides that what's lost here, and this goes to the consciousness, like that even though the monster is now intelligent, kind of, but the monster lacks a soul. You know, that's, I guess, what we might call consciousness. So the story ends with a, with a, with a student and the monster travelling to Egypt, basically to try and steal the soul of a dead pharaoh. And then clearly the author runs out of inspiration. You have that boring kind of, and then they woke up and it was all a dream, the new monster to the story, which I absolutely hate. But it's exactly a story that asks, does this kind of artificial life really have what it takes to be a life? And that kind of, you know, that, you know that's not an uncommon view of kind of artificial life. Um, the great 19th century essayist Thomas Carlyle, um, somewhere, I forget where, writes about you know, the soul and the body of the nation, like you know, England, thinking of you know, Carlyle being Carlyle, you know, the church as the soul of the nation, and what happens to, the, to a nation when it no longer has that kind of soul. And very, very interesting, he says, you know, the nation you would, you would have then would have a mere galvanic life. In other words, a kind of semblance of life without what makes life really what life is, which, yes, as I mean, there's, that, yeah, it's just going through the motions, so to speak, without there being anything, anything else there. And I don't want it to be lost. You mentioned galvanize. We we got a little bit of the history of the word of galvanize and uh, also volt, I believe. You said uh, volta, that that was where the word volt came from? Galvanic is from galvani, and volts are indeed from, from volta. Around by the end of the 19th century, typical Victorian fashion, they had a committee. And the committee, well, I think there'd be various committees, but, you know, basically established, you know, what names are going to be associated with with, with, with with every unit. I mean, it's very much part, actually, of the kind of industrialization of electricity around about the end of the, of the 19th century. You need a common language so that you can make sure that everything fits together, that all the bits are standardized, so to speak. So that's when you have serious attention to to, yeah, to, to units of measurement, effectively. Is this something that happens uh, nowadays as well? Does it happen, like, on the black market or, you know... Behind the scenes, do you do people get bodies from morgues and graveyards? And do do you do that? Are you out at, at midnight grabbing the freshest uh, freshest corpses? It's not a no. I have never I have never stolen a corpse in my life. Honest, I swear. Surprisingly um, enough, that's not the first time someone said that on this show. Yeah. yeah I see. worry about this show <laughs> Seem a little too emphatic about it though. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but but do people do this? Have, have you heard of uh, anything in the news that you know someone's I been experimenting have, I with? I have no idea. I mean I believe the trade in in body snatching to be long gone by large. Um I mean, corpses for experimentation these days are usually acquired. You know, people leave their body designs. That's, by and large, how you get them. Would you be able to put someone else's head on a body and have it... Could you do a head transplant? Just <laughs> <laughs> I think you're definitely asking the wrong person. <laughs> um, they, I mean, there have been... There have been... Well, I would go as far as say there have been such experiments. There certainly have been such... a speculations now of course there's an interesting question i mean who, you know, who, 
who is it then, so to speak? I mean, what's the you know, what's the identity of the of the composite corpse? Is it the identity of the of the torso, or is it the identity of the head? I mean, I guess as we tend to think that our minds, our souls, maybe reside in the head, then it wouldn't be so much a matter of a head transplant as a body transplant, since your identity would be in the in the head, so to speak, rather than the other way around. That makes that makes much more sense to me. And I'm now saying a head transplant sounds silly. It's a body transplant because everything else is happening. Most everything is happening in the head. Yes, well, at least that's that, that's what we think in our culture. Now, if there was a way to find out which of the bodies used in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was afraid of fire, then maybe we could figure it out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I just have I, I have one more uh, question or I guess story about all this. You mentioned Matthew Clydesdale, right? Mm-hmm. What was the uh, story about him? Um, well, this was I mean this was Andrew Ewer. This was Andrew Ewer's you know, similar Aldini type experiment. Uh, this took place in 1818. Um, this was in Glasgow, and Matthew Clydesdale was was the unfortunate body. I mean, again, convicted of murder. And again, considered to be a sufficiently heinous murder that it was going to be, you know, so not only was he going to be taken away and hung by the neck until dead, but then his body would be taken down and taken taken by the surgeons. So again, it's paraded through town under guard. I think you know, these sort of these sort of things are very very ceremonial occasions. And you know, very similar kinds of experiments carried out in it as you know, as Aldini had carried out on George Forster um 15 years or so earlier you know, sort of, you know, limbs are made to twitch the eyes open and roll around the chest breathes supposedly at one stage the corpse literally sat up though I mean Ewer describes the scene in his you know, in his paper describing the experiments in terms but I mean I'm almost inclined to think that you have just read Frankenstein and is a kind of adopting Frankensteinian language, if you like, to describe the experiments. Because, I mean, it's described yeah, in, in, in the language of Gothic. I mean, it's kind of, you know, the hideous countenance contorted in various ways. I'm trying to remember that, well, I'm paraphrasing now because I can't quite remember the quote. Um, something like you know, more hideous than the representation of a Fuseli or a Keane. Fuseli is a you know, famous early 19th century painter, particularly known now, I guess, for that painting, what's it called? Yeah, the Nightmare Woman Asleep, where you know, literally an imp kind of sat on her chest and a literal nightmare kind of ghoulishly looking over it. Keane, famous early 19th century Shakespearean actor, you know, known for these kind of stylized stage representations of, you know, of bodily movement. Yeah, so Ewer is explicitly drawing on that kind of vocabulary to describe what it is that he's getting Clydesdale's body to do. Crazy. I mean, I think my last piece on this, my last bit to say, isn't so much a question as it is just a comment. Could you imagine seeing that, like, for the first time? Could you imagine what goes through the spectators' heads when they're seeing this? Like, I mean, it would be disturbing nowadays to see something like that, but back then when they didn't have as much of a grasp on, you know, the the science of everything, they must have walked away horrified and also questioning just, like, their faith and and, and everything. Like, it's, it's incredible to me. 
Um, well, I mean, remember who Andrew Ewer's audience and that experiment, you know, these would have been hard-nosed Glaswegian doctors. Oh, yeah. Uh, though it's also worth bearing in mind that Ewer also makes a point of saying in the, in, in, in the description that one of them fainted. So, so clearly, yes, it must have had something on an, of an impact even on that kind of audience of hard-nosed Glaswegian medical men. So I think what was in my head was um, the, the dance putting on the Ritz sequence from Young Frankenstein where they perform <laughs> publicly just in a theater. So I think that's what I was thinking originally when I, when I was thinking about just the average folks. I mean, there, there, there's a satirical poem written about, amongst other things, Aldini's experiments, which does in fact feature, I'm trying to remember the lines, yeah, something like make dead people cut droll capers. I mean, that's the that's the that's the line from the poem. Imagine you know, somebody you know, dancing you know, like a puppet through town, or 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 a reanimated dog, because Aldina did carry out experiments on dogs um, that have been cut in half, and the poet imagines that have been sort of sewn back the wrong way around. So, so they're just running around with two legs up and two legs down. So, yes, there's that kind of making fun of the whole thing, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's, 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 a, it's a satire that's based, I suppose, in a sense, it's on kind of horror and amazement at the possibilities. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. 